Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward along with Mr. Tom Jokic, my co-host and the creator of this show. And Tom, this is like my birthday and Christmas and National Songwriters Day all rolled into one. I'm really excited. This, this, this show, it'd be like if we did an entire season on Kiss for you. <laughs> Actually, I think it's better than that, believe it or not. What's it all about? Christopher, we've done a few very, very special editions of Famous Lost Words. We've done the show on One Hit Wonders. If you've missed that, go back and listen to that one. It's a great episode. It's so much fun. We've done some of the greatest Canadian songs of all time. We also have done a show on the 70s. We've done a show on the 80s. Uh, we're going to be doing one on the architects of rock and roll from Buddy Holly to Elvis Presley, you know, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, that kind of thing. Oh, that's going to be fun. And we recently did Motown, which was a spectacular episode. This time around, I was thinking about it. Because what happened is I had a bunch of, I had one or two clips with Carol King. And then I saw, I had, you know, leftover clips with the interview that you did with Neil Young. And I saw Bruce Coburn and I went, Christopher, we have to do a songwriting episode. And of course, that is speaking your language. You, you know, <laughs> I resisted. I tried to talk you out of it, but no. <laughs> so we have just single segments. So the show is going to move really quickly. But we have artists like Paul McCartney, while he's still in the Beatles, talking about how he and John Lennon write together. We have late artists like Harry Chapin, um, who did the song Cats in the Cradle. We have Jim Croce, also passed away around that same time. Him talking about his music at the time and how he comes about creating them. We have your buddy, one of your buddies, Stephen Bishop, in an episode <laughs> of When Rock Stars Attack, and it is uh, funny, you must admit. I think I think I have to disown him now based on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but it is funny. Either that, or Either that or Randy Bachman's going to get really mad. That's right. <laughs> we don't want that. Now we know who the victim is in that particular uh, talk. <laughs> and speaking of, we have Burton Cummings. We have Lindsey Buckingham, Gordon Lightfoot, um, Pete Townsend talking about the device that made him a better songwriter. That's very interesting. Lou Reed talking about the kinds of music that he can successfully pull off on stage and the kind that he can't. We've got Michael Stipe from R.E.M. We've got Don Henley from the Eagles. Joni Mitchell talking about her early music lessons and how that helped shape her as a songwriter. Oh boy, oh boy, did that ring a few bells for me. <laughs> yes. Oh, excellent. Sarah McLaughlin talking, Serena Ryder, um, Paul Simon, Carol King, maybe the queen of songwriting, with such a really great clip about the singer-songwriting era from the early 70s. So great stuff coming along, so let's get started as we talk about the greatest songwriters of all time. Once upon a time, it'd been so fine Do the bumps of dime in your prime Then you that's Bob Dylan and a classic, maybe the greatest of all time right there, Like a Rolling Stone from 1965. Top of my list. Go ahead, Christopher, as we talk about songwriting. Well, in my world, it all starts with a song. Now, on Famous Lost Words, we let the artists tell the story, and that story takes us to all corners of the music business, where you find fame, adulation, jealousy, competition, disappointment, renewal, all of that stuff. They're all part of what an artist can experience no matter where they find themselves on the food chain at any given moment. Right. You can have a string of hits behind you, 
a committed record label, a top flight manager, etc. But the engine for everything you do is the song. And some of the brightest stars will tell you that the thing they are most proud of is their songwriting. For example, Taylor Swift is on top of the pop star heap right now, but her writing is the thing that gets all of her attention when she's not touring. Mm -hmm. And it shows in the remarkable growth in her work from songs about teenage spats to more, I don't know, big canvas work that mines her emotional and professional life. Well, you laid it out beforehand, but we have an array of creators of some of the most memorable songs to grace the charts ever by a wide range of writers. Some are dead and some are living. Some view the craft as a glorious mystery, like Jan Arden. Others, like Paul Simon, regard the process as, hmm, almost drudgery. <laughs> it's a good <laughs> clip of Paul being a little bit grumpy, uh, but it's good. And it's while he's a, it's funny because he sounds kind of curmudgeonly, but he's a very young guy in the clip, which makes it even funnier. Yeah. You know, we have virtually every single major singer-songwriter talking about their craft, as we said earlier. Joni Mitchell, Gordon Lightfoot, Bruce Coburn, Neil Young, Burton Cummings, those are just Canadians. And, and apparently there are some great writers who aren't Canadian. And we've listed them as the well, including, including our friend Neil Finn of Crowded House talking to you in one of my favorite clips. Uh, and we also have Billy Joel, Carly Simon, like I said before. I can already tell you that just based on this list, I will predict here and now that this could very well be a two-part episode on songwriters. Oh, all right, if it has to be. You know, Tom, on a personal note, hearing these great writers of timeless work, I find myself listening closely for something that I can use or confirmation of something that I already do. And I'm fascinated by these voices. And I think our listeners will be as well. Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. Nobody came. The Beatles from 1966. Great song. So well written. Eleanor Rigby. Tom, here's Paul McCartney talking about a fairly famous collaboration. We normally do, though, even if I go away and write a song. I mean, normally the reason I write it is on my own, or John writes it on his own, is because it's daft just sitting around waiting for the other one to come up and finish the song off. If you happen to be on your own, you might as well finish it off yourself, you know, because we don't have words and music, as you well know. So what normally does happen is, if I get stuck on a middle eight or the, the middle bit of a song, I'll give in, you know, mm. knowing that John will... When, when I see him, he'll sort of finish it off for me, and it'll be a 50-50 thing. That's what happens with a lot of them. That's what did happen with, even with a lot of the single efforts. I just sort of forget about a middle eight until I see John, then say, I need a middle eight for this one, and he sort of says, right, okay, let's do one now. Yeah. And it works. Oh, I love how Paul says it's daft to sit around and wait for the other guy to think of something. But at the beginning of their partnership, Paul and John often did just that. And eventually, they started writing songs separately and then joined forces afterwards to help finish each other's ideas. And unlike a lot of other songwriting partnerships, each of them could write music and lyrics. That's very interesting. Like It's not like Bernie and Elton, where Bernie writes yeah. the lyrics, Elton writes the music. Uh, Paul and John could do both. Operator, oh, let's forget about this car. Jim Croce, an operator from 1972. What a lovely song. The late singer who died 48 years ago is still fondly remembered. His work is beloved. And you know, when it came to craft and songwriting, technique, Jim Croce believed in keeping it simple. The simplicity is, uh, is something I try to aim at in writing the songs. And it's really nice to have it go right down the line. 
you know, in the studio, having it simple and not adding too much. I think that uh, in leaving it simple, too, and not adding a particular direction, uh, people have a chance to use their own imagination. I mean, some people say that some of the songs sound country. Well, they imagine a, a country feel to them, or they can imagine a blues thing to them. It's, it's really nice to let people participate in the direction or the feel of a song, too. So that's why I try to keep them as simple as, as I can possibly keep them. And the lyrical direction, I think, is getting, getting better. I feel that they're starting to flow a lot better. Jim Croce, who would have turned 78 just a couple of months ago, instead, we lost him in 1973 at the mm. age of 30. So many great songs, and he had quite the range from Bad Bad Leroy Brown to Time in a Bottle to Operator. He was really on a roll at the time of his death, and there's just no telling how much further he would have gone with his music and career. Little ditty about Jack and Diane, two American kids growing up in the heartland. 1982, John Mellencamp and Jack and Diane. You know, Mellencamp never really got fancy with his songwriting, but he could be evocative just in his simplicity. I love that song. Yeah, very much so. He says that he followed the path of least resistance in his songwriting, and maybe that's maybe that's how it works. You can only write about things you know about. I don't understand, uh, you know, like I lived in London for a year, and I don't understand those people, and I don't, I don't even pretend to. I only can write about things that I understand, you know, little insignificant parts of day-to-day uh, -day existence, you know, trying to find... Uh, the path of least resistance or something, right? Yep, like I said, John never really got fancy with his songwriting, but he really hit the nail on the head with songs like Pink Houses, Cherry Bomb, Small Town, and he was one of the very few artists of the 1980s who seemed to be untouched by technology. In fact, the more successful he got, the more he embraced instruments like violins and mandolins instead of synthesizers. In fact, his 1987 Lonesome Jubilee tour, uh, the concert that I saw was at Maple Leaf Gardens, November 16th, 1987, and it was one of the best concerts I had ever seen. And sometimes when we touch the honesty's too much. That's Dan Hill from 1977, Sometimes When We Touch. Okay, this is a pretty wild clip. Dan is very happy to be on tour, but he tells quite a different story when the reception isn't so great. <laughs> this is one of those ones that's just too close to the bone. It, it yeah. gives me shudders to think about it because uh, we've all been there, you know, in the, being in the wrong gig at the wrong time with the wrong <laughs> audience, you know. And uh, the thing about Dan, which I love, is his resourcefulness. He uses the adverse response as motivation to create. I played in Sweden the other day, and a punk rock crowd invaded into the audience, and that was very hostile. What went down? Well, they just, I couldn't, thank goodness, understand what they were saying, you know, since I can't really understand Swedish, but they definitely didn't want to have anything to do with what I was singing about, and they were very hostile, you know, and, you know, just very physical in their disagreement, you know, so. And loud? They were pretty loud, yeah. But it was kind of like you're sitting there, and you're, I opened up to England Dan John for a Coley once, and they were throwing firecrackers at me. <laughs> on stage, you know, that got me so angry that I drove all the way home from Utica, Toronto, because I never like to stay in the same city, city if it's a poor show, oh, yeah. and wrote a song in the car on the way back, you know. But you kind of look at those things with detached amusement, you know. I find that sometimes uh, 
when something happens that's negative to me, the fighter in me strikes out and writes as a you know because writing to me still represents my survival. Yeah. Oh boy, you can hear the determination of Dan Hill right there, and he says that writing represents his very survival. Great clip. You know that he means it. Songwriting means so mm -hmm. much to him. This is a special edition of Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Coming up next, Neil Young explains why the thing that makes him a good songwriter also makes him a bad friend. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic doing our special on songwriting. Oh, it doesn't get any better than this, yeah. Tom. Let's go to 1970. That's Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and Ohio, written by Neil Young. This is another one of those amazing interviews that Christopher did during his Much Music days. Sorry, I don't mean to talk about you like you're not here. Uh, this is from 89, <laughs> and Neil is in a particularly good mood, but he's also very blunt about his failings as a human being. I think with regards to the interviews, I had the good luck of being able to interview people like Neil Finn and Neil Young. So that's yeah. all you really need. <laughs> Just ask the right question. And that's Neil right. was, as you as you point out, he was in a great mood. It was a kind of a, a wry sense of humor that he brought to almost every response that, uh, that he had. And he, he talks about songwriting and says, there are sort of some basic rules. There's so many different ways to write a song. The only rule is that you don't try, you know. If I'm trying to write it, it's not going to be any good. When you, you know, and also there's another rule. There's, a, there's only one rule, but there's another rule. <laughs> the other rule is don't ignore yourself. If you're walking down the street and you're a songwriter and you start hearing a song, don't wait. So if you just let it come through you, and then when it comes through you, you don't pick up on it instead of going, wow, that was cool, I'll have to remember that. I, I try to really get into it and do it when it happens. Sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm not. The older I get, the more responsibilities I have, the more distractions, the more possessions, uh, the more friends. All those things stop me from being spontaneous and grabbing the moment when it comes along. How do you sort of clear the slate of all the distractions in order to get that creative state of mind? Oh, I... <laughs> uh, Many different ways, I guess. I, you know, I've been unpredictable to a lot of my friends and uh, not a very good friend. I can be a good friend for a while and then I'm not there anymore all of a sudden. Uh, people who work for me know that I'm very shaky and I can change just like that and everything. And that, But that's part of my makeup. That's what I do, what I, you know. I can either spend my life trying to be a perfect person and treat everybody with uh, the utmost of diplomacy and take my time and everything. Or I can spend my, t my, my life trying to write songs and be an artist, to, trying to be there to write the songs, be available. You know, so I, I've chosen to try to do that, and, you know, with the exception of my family, who come first. So, so I'm, I haven't been a lot of fun for a lot of people to be around for a long time. But I, I have my friends that I've had for years, years and years. But there aren't very many of them. That is one of the most self-aware clips I've ever heard. And that just goes to show you Neil Young's devotion to his craft at the expense of his friendships. There's much more where that came from. Hear the rest of Christopher's chat with Neil Young in episode 209. This is Famous Lost Words as we put the spotlight on the craft of songwriting. And I'm worried. 
That's Bruce Coburn from 1979 and wondering where the lions are. You know, Bruce is a master of the songwriting craft, and apparently all you need is a blowout, a guitar, and the northern lights to write a good one. I think many of us decline to label things that happen to us as adventures, whereas uh, you might. It depends on how you look at it. Uh, obviously, everybody goes through lots of mundane junk that you don't feel like you want to take seriously or, or can give any importance to. But. but a flat tire in the rain can be an adventure if your head's in the right place. Well, yeah. like uh, I had a flat tire uh, in the middle of the night driving from Calgary to Medicine Hat this, well, a month ago or so that uh, was responsible for a song, you know, like uh, directly because uh, the northern lights were out and they were out all the way across the prairies for three days, like an incredible mm. display, or three nights, rather, anyway. But uh, And I got this flat tire and my jack broke, right? So I was there on the highway in the m- middle of the night with no jack and, a, and the blowout. And uh, <laughs> all, I, all I had to do was sit there and look at the northern lights and write a song, and it was a beautiful experience, you know. <laughs> That's a great clip for what you and I, Christopher, I love what, that. it would have been like just a nightmare to be in the middle of nowhere and you get a flat tire and your jack breaks and you just don't know what the heck to do. Bruce grabs his acoustic guitar, <laughs> has a look at the sky, and of course, in that moment, all you see is Northern Lights, which is fantastic. And, uh, yeah. and then he creates a song out of that. His sound has changed so much over the years. He started with songs like Wondering Where the Lions Are and Tokyo, a song that I really like. And he changed in the 80s with If I Had a Rocket Launcher, which was a big hit in the U.S. for, I think, what were the wrong reasons, but I respect Bruce's writing, and, and I certainly don't begrudge him that success. And the song Lovers in a Dangerous Time. Those are wildly different songs. And I saw him live in the early 80s. He was fantastic. And his 1979 album, Humans, remains one of my favorites for sure. Yeah, he's an experimenter stylistically, which I've always admired. And it's so interesting to follow his career along. He's also such an incredible musician. And that gives him a foundation to to do all that experimenting with. And boy, what I wouldn't have given to write the line, got a kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. What a wonderful line. It's just so, there's so much hope, but there's also determination. Yeah. And this, just that one phrase, I would have loved to have been there in his brain when he thought of that. And he would have went, oh yeah, I better write that <laughs> I think down think it'd be crowded now. in there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, speaking of great songwriters. Please don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you've got till it's gone They pay paradise Joni Mitchell, Big Yellow Taxi from 1970. What a great song and a great storyteller and songwriter herself. Well, her eye for detail in her songs is matched in the stories that she tells about the songs and about her life. This one really hit a, hit a, a sweet spot for me. The tale of the strict piano teacher killing your love of music. I had a, a knuckle wrapper for a piano teacher for a while when I was a kid and it sent me to the guitar. Okay, let's listen to the clip. My first love was classical music because this kid played it very well. He could play the church organ. He could hardly reach the pedals. And we used to go to movies like Tales of Hoffman. There was one Kirk Douglas movie called The Story of Three Loves, and that had the most beautiful melody as a theme. And It was called The Story of Three Loves, but really it was um, variations on a theme by Paganini by Rachmaninoff. 
And I used to go down to a store and, and take that out of the brown paper and go into a listening booth and put it on and just swoon. So from that point on, well, I'd be seven or eight, you know, I used to dream that I could play beautiful mu melodies on the piano. And um, local piano teaching at that time was such that, that to try and compose, especially at that age, or I think at any age, was misconstrued. It, it was called playing by ear, and it was considered amateurish. And they, they'd wrap your knuckles and say, why would you want to do that when you can have the masters under your fingers? You know, So that creativity was pretty much squelched. So uh, it killed my love of music until my teens when I took up a ukulele because uh, I couldn't afford a guitar. And that was not to go into show business. That was just to accompany rowdy drinking songs at Wiener Roast. I mean, it was just... <laughs> It was just mostly for fun. Great storytelling, as always, from Joni Mitchell on Famous Lost Words yeah. as we honor the greatest songwriters of all time. So, Christopher, you were saying that you had a knuckle wrapper, as you put it, uh, for a piano <laughs> yeah. teacher. And so, did you ever go back to the piano, or did that person just kind of scare you away enough to, uh, to kind of beat the uh, love of piano out of you? Well, he successfully beat it out of me, but... Um I mean, once I picked up the guitar and once the Beatles came along, of course, you know, <laughs> there was nothing else to worry about. Um, I think I started playing piano again just as kind of like a sideline. Like if I'm working on a song and I want to hear it differently, I'll just switch over to piano to hear what it sounds like. But I sure wouldn't want anybody to be listening in. <laughs> you know, I hear what you're saying. I hear that perhaps you're not as proficient on the piano as you are on guitar. But the fact that you can do that is just so great. To me, it's magical that someone can go, oh, yeah, well, enough for the guitar for now. I need some new ideas. And then you just start banging out chords or notes on a piano, and they make sense. That's amazing. That is a mystery to me. Who said they make sense? <laughs> <laughs> and you can just picture this precocious young girl, Joni Mitchell, on the prairies, not taking kindly at all to the piano teacher who wanted to squelch her creativity, as she put it. By the way, you can hear much more of that excellent interview from our archives in episode 116 of Famous Lost Words. And remember, there are more than 80 episodes to catch up on. Don't forget to subscribe and smash that five-star button if you're liking the show. Yes, please. This is Famous Lost Words, where we dig up great interviews from the archives and play the best parts for you. This week, we're focusing on songwriters. And sometimes songwriters get nasty about other people, just like the rest of us mere mortals. When Rockstar's Attack is next. This is Famous Lost Words as we celebrate the songwriter. I'm Tom Jokic with my co-host and friend Christopher Ward, a celebrated songwriter himself. And Christopher, here's a fellow songwriter you know very well. On and on, she just keeps on trying. And she smiles when she feels like crying on and on. On and on, 1977 by your buddy Stephen Bishop. Writing with Stephen was a whole adventure, I have to tell you, and most of it was spent laughing. He's one of the funniest guys I have ever met. Uh, yes, I bet he is, and I could tell. We actually listened to a bunch of clips uh, before I sent this one to you, and this one stands out, because even though we're focusing on songwriting, we're certainly not about to turn our back on a perfectly good episode <laughs> of When Rock Stars Attack, right? Well, When Songwriters Attack, this, this is a special episode. <laughs> That's right. And Christopher, this comes from Stephen Bishop, who you've played with. So let's have a listen to these tart words, this attack from Stephen Bishop 
on a Canadian legend. It's not pretty. I get bored real easy with oh, hard rock bands. Bachman Turner Overdrive, I think they're big here in Canada. I think they stink. <laughs> and I think that's, to me, just... I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's worthless music, but I would say... Uh, I think it's like a quickie in bed or something. It's temporary satisfaction. Oh, dear. When rock stars attack yeah. songwriter Stephen Bishop taking on a beloved Canadian band... Bachman Turner Overdrive. Pretty funny, though. And for <laughs> more rock stars attacking, check out episode 306 or just listen to any episode featuring Burton Cummings. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we should name it after him. Just call it the Burton Cummings segment. That's a good idea. This is Famous Lost Words with Christopher Ward and Mr. Tom Jokic, and we are celebrating some of the greatest songwriters of all time. I'm loving this. <laughs> yeah. You could read my mind, love What a tale my thoughts could tell Just like an old-time movie About a ghost from a wishing well If you could read my mind, Gordon Lightfoot, the great Gordon Lightfoot from 1970. Boy, oh boy, what a fantastic song that is. Yeah. His work just stands the test of time, doesn't it? It really does. There's nothing dated sounding about it at all. And, you know... We think we know so much about Gordon Lightfoot in Canada because he's kind of like our national songwriter. He's like the father of that business. At least he is in my mind anyway. Yeah. And I think the minds of a lot of other writers. Um, but it's what's revealed, as, as it was, for instance, in uh, Nick Jennings' uh, wonderful biography of Gord, is just how disciplined a songwriter he is. It's like it's work, mm -hmm. and he's going to work at it until he gets it exactly where he wants it, and you know, he'll be satisfied in the process. Well, I wrote 22 songs this year, so I like to have a, a choice of material, and uh, what I usually start out is just, uh, or with, like by doing, is just sitting down with a guitar and uh, working usually like with a chord progression or something like that. I don't know that many chords... Uh, uh, but I do know like uh, certain variations on the chords, and uh, I don't play lead. But uh, it's just a matter of just sitting down, playing the guitar, and at times I will actually uh, uh, write a song without using anything at all. Which comes first, the, the melody or the words? What's the the idea? What starts first? I think it's uh, just uh, putting words together until some sort of a title or some kind of a point of view emerges out of it. You have to sit down and, and just put things together. It's hard to explain. It's like doing a jigsaw puzzle or something like that. The method of, uh, of just sitting down and, and, and working on a chord progression really is the most solid foundation, I think, to work on. Is it important for you to say something? And, uh, uh, if I may add to that, sure. too, it's uh, uh, this is something that anybody that can play the guitar at all can do. Well, I'm not saying just anybody, but I, I think that... Uh, a lot of people probably would write a lot more, maybe, if uh, they just had the uh, ability just to sit down and concentrate. There's Gordon Lightfoot in one of many great interviews from our archives, talking about his craft, which he still continues to practice to this day. You know, Christopher, when I interviewed mm -hmm. him in his home several months ago, the home was really large, but Gordon had a very small and comfy room on the main floor that was filled with guitars and even tape decks and other musical instruments. And that's where I interviewed him, and that's where he works on his music every day to this day. Okay, I wish I'd been in there for that <laughs> interview. I'm not going to lie. All right, so anyway, we're celebrating the greatest songwriters of all time. Let's keep going with Carly Simon. I have some dreams. 
1972. What a great song. There's so much speculation about the meaning of that song, and it is both direct and opaque. Does that make sense, Christopher? <laughs> yes. Okay, good. That is a very good description of a song. I like that a lot. <laughs> great, great. And you know what? I, I think she should just continue to keep it a mystery because then people will keep asking and keep wondering and keep speculating, yes. which is good. Now, she did sell part of the secret to, I think it's Dick Ebersol. She sold one of the identities of one of the people from the song, because she said it's about three or four different people. So she told Dick Ebersol after he donated $50,000, I think it was, to a charity of her choice at some sort of big event. And it was like a, it was like an auction, and she auctioned it off. Isn't that great? And so she whispered it to him, but he had to promise <laughs> that he wacky. Would, but he, he had to promise that he wouldn't tell anyone. Yeah, it is wacky. It's, it's a wonderful story. Carly Simon and your Sylvain, <laughs> such a well-written song. You know what I love when she talks about her writing is how she likes getting her body into it. I love trains. I love to write on trains. I've written about three or four songs on a train, just, you know, the lyrics. Um, and it just somehow moving, just the movement does something to me. It, it gets my body in motion. And, uh, and it gets me kind of almost physically excited. Don't take that... <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I just become activated in some way. It, I don't, I can't explain it, but the adrenaline does does certain things. Wow, that's really quite amazing, Carly Simon, and the different things that inspire artists. And for Carly, it's movement. By the way, for more Carly interviews, listen to episodes. 109 and 405 of Famous Lost Words. And she is such a candid interview subject, too. You'll enjoy them. Yes. Tom, upcoming, we have one of your greatest interviews. Right. Let's go back to 1994. There will be no consolation prize This time the bone is broken clean No baptism, no reprise And no sweet taste of victory Jan Arden in the incredible Unloved 1994 from Living Under June. This interview, by the way, is with me and Jan from 2001, and you'll hear Jan reference the events of that year in this clip. I love Jan Arden. She is just mm. one of the most insightful uh, interview subjects, and at the same time, the most whimsical. And that's a, a hard balance to strike, but she does it marvelously. And here, she talks about, in her process of songwriting, embracing the mystery. It's a mysterious process that I really don't care to understand because I think that would take the fun out of it. It's like, I don't know, I don't want to know why the presents are under the tree at Christmas time. You know, when I'm six years old, I just want to bloody well know that they're there. And I don't know myself through music. I don't, I don't recognize myself half the time. I love doing it. I love it, love it, love it. But it's not a catalyst to releasing pain or expelling demons or expressing undying love. It is such a primal expression of sounds and beats and words. And you string them all together and you come up with something. I'm really surprised to hear that from you because Sarah McLaughlin had this whole analogy about how songwriting is like diving into a, a lake at night where you can't see anything and it's scary and you and you but you have to do it because it's catharsis and it's all that stuff and and it's not like that for you it's, mm. do you like some of the songs are sound deeply personal are they are they painful well, I'm sure at all they are. for I, you I, there's no pain involved i'm entranced by melody i'm very intrigued by melody 
but I just I'm stumbling through life like everybody else but no I, as uh, being a, a cathartic process no I, I really don't I'm a really jovial person I mean I spend four days out of the week somewhat kind of happy and three days kind of somewhat sad and then you know the rest of time well, I guess that's the whole week right there isn't it there's four and three that's six okay well <laughs> and I I just think it's something that I do I wouldn't say I have to do it there's lots of things I'm interested in that I'd love to do I think and Keith Richards talked about this of all people that human beings are receivers of some sort whether it's you believe in uh, the spirituality or Jesus Christ or, I mean, how dare we be talking about God at this time of in humanity, but it's just about being open to receive ideas. I think ideas are divine intervention, and I think that's what songwriting is. So interesting. Jan says, I don't know myself through music. I don't even recognize myself sometimes. By the way, when she talks about this time in history, she's referring to 9-11, which had happened exactly one month before I had a chance to interview her right. um, at that time. Great interview, yeah. Tom. This is Famous Lost Words, where we find great interviews from our archives and play the best parts for you. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. This week, part one of our special about songwriters. In two weeks, we have part two, including Elton John, Don Henley, Smokey Robinson, Billy Joel, R.E.M., Serena Ryder, Sarah McLaughlin, and a great segment with Neil Finn of Crowded House, who literally makes up a song on the spot. Still to come on this episode, the genius of Paul Simon. But first, Fleetwood Mac. Lindsey Buckingham and Fleetwood Mac from Rumors in 1977 and his very bitter but brilliant breakup song, Go Your Own Way. Tom, Lindsey will be forever linked to Stevie Nicks. Yeah. Of course. And in this clip from the 1970s, Lindsey explains how relationships influence the work. And I really want to apologize for the quality of this audio clip, but what he's saying is really great. Have a listen. You know, we've been together for quite a while. And, yeah. Uh, so uh, when we first started, we were doing that a lot more, but now we try to stay away from each other. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's hard, you know. It is hard when you're with somebody on that level and you're, and you're working with them. And it's not like uh, when a wife goes away to work and her husband goes to work and they get away from each other for eight hours and they come back. So, you know, really hard. And I know Christine can vouch for the same thing, you know, working with John in that way. And the, and there's a lot of good, I'm sure, in a lot of ways that our relationship is a lot tighter than most other people's could ever be, you know, only because we do have certain rapport and, and understandings about certain, you know, things that we both care about, you know. You know, as Joni Mitchell said, it's a, it's a constant stranger, you know. Life is just a constant thing, you know, that's, and you never know what's going to happen. It's uh, yeah, yeah, days of our lives. You know, <laughs> you know, I don't know if that was Stevie chiming in at the end saying days of our lives, but it sure sounded like her. And that was the perfect way of describing their relationship. Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham talking about songwriting. Well, she, she managed to keep her perspective, I think, better than most, Absolutely. I have to say. Absolutely. And, you know, we should have probably planned to play uh, Stevie here. You know what? Let's, let's do that. So here's Stevie Nicks talking to Marilyn Dennis about writing the song Dreams, okay? 
probably say that Dreams is probably my favorite song because it's the one that I I always enjoy doing it on stage, no matter what. You know, it's the song that never gets kicked out of the set. Mm-hmm. And and when you wrote that song, what was going on at the time? That was uh, I wrote Dreams. Lindsay wrote Go Your Own Way. That was our two different reactions to the same thing that had happened. You broke up. Yeah. And so his his was nasty and bitter and, sh- you know, packing up, shacking up's all you want to do, which was totally not true. <laughs> and, you know, and I was like, when the rain washes you clean, you'll know. You know, so that was the difference in Lindsay's and my songs. I was like, you know, I was trying to be the have the Indian philosophy about it, and you know, he was just like Man. downright angry. Yeah, yeah. So, but those were the, those were the parallel songs. What a great clip! I love her candor. Oh man, she is so good, so good. And you can hear that Stevie interview with Marilyn Dennis on a previous edition of Famous Lost Words. Please do your best to get caught up on all of our episodes, and don't forget to rate and review us, and review us very generously if you don't mind because it helps keep this show going. If the cat's in the cradle and the nineteen seventy four cats in the cradle, Harry Chapin. Tom, we got two short clips from Harry. The first one talks about how he wrote hundreds of songs before he finally got noticed. There's nothing more scary than writing song you think is fantastic and going to record company after record company after record company and they say, Hey sorry buddy, but <clears throat> It stinks. You know, I wrote 400 songs before anybody paid any attention to my music, and there was a very simple reason. They stank. Here, Harry talks about the inspiration for his biggest hit, Cats in the Cradle. Well, it came from a very personal experience of my wife writing me a poem that was basically a zinger saying, Hey, Harry Chapin, you're spending all your time running around the country getting to be famous, but, you know, we got, we got a whole bunch of kids here and, uh, that deserve a piece of you, and... Uh, think about 30, 40 years from now. And sitting there with your extra million dollars uh, and having n- your kids never talk to you, before the poem hit me, I was probably spending about 100 nights a year away. This past year, I've spent, I think, 12. This will be the 12th night I've spent away from home. I've cut my concerts down a lot, and I've tried to concentrate on more meaningful things. I mean, the, the ultimate thing about a song is it should, if it's, especially if it's got a message, it damn well better affect the writer, and it sure affected my life. We're gonna have a good time there. Harry Chapin, a great songwriter and a philanthropist and activist who died in a terrible car accident in 1981. He was only 38 years old. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward as we celebrate songwriters. I'm going to Graceland, Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. From 1986, that's Graceland. Losing love is like a window in your heart. Everybody sees you're blown apart. Everybody hears the wind blow. You know what amazes me about his work is he can write stuff that just cuts right to the heart of the matter. And yet he does it within the framework of a character that he assumes for the song. You know, I am just a poor boy and my story is seldom told. I mean, and he climbs inside those characters and, and makes them come to life in three, four, or five minutes of, of music. It's, it's an amazing gift. And it is amazing because he has this almost conversational way of singing, right? Yeah. Like when he sings um, in uh, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, I don't particularly love the chorus of that song, but at the very beginning when he says, um, 
grieves me so to see you in such pain. I wish there was something I can do to make you smile again. And he goes, well, I appreciate that, but could you please explain about the 50 ways, right? And <laughs> and it's just conversational. It sounds like you're listening to two people, two kind of smart and compassionate people talking to each other. It's a, really a gift. So not only is he a great songwriter, but he's a great performer of his own songs. Oh, yeah, for sure. In this clip, Tom, Paul indicates that inspiration is kind of overrated. I don't write from inspiration. I write, I'm a, I'm, I'm a professional writer. You know, and uh, I, I don't sit down every day from nine to five and write. But I have uh, patterns of writing, and when I sit down, I start to play, and I start to sing whatever melody comes to my head, and I sing whatever lyrics come into my head, and sometimes they're good, and sometimes they're interesting, and sometimes they're not, and really, the 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 I find the hardest job of of writing songs is being an editor. You have to throw out what doesn't really make it, and say, well, this one line is good, and I'll try and build off this line, and this melody is good or this is average. But I mean, it's not like I'm, 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 not, I'm not inspired to write. Okay, I believe that clip comes from the mid-1960s. And while I will take Paul at his word in that clip, I still consider him to be an inspired songwriter. Tom, that does it for our very special edition of Famous Lost Words, part one of our tribute to music's greatest songwriters. Our show is created and produced by Tom Jokic, executive producer Sarah Cummings. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. Don't forget to subscribe to Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. <laughs>